And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 11. I do want to welcome you to worship this evening with the church at Brook Hills, and especially if you're, if you're visiting with us, whether you're here from another church visiting with us, or maybe if you're here and, and you, you don't know Christ, or exploring Christianity, the church, exploring who Christ is, we want to welcome you. We hope that tonight it will be evident to you in the church why we celebrate Christ like we do. But you have come on a, a special day of sorts for our faith family because this is a day that we have set aside for fasting and prayer together as a church. Maybe you're a member of the faith family and you missed that memo and we are not bitter at all that you have had breakfast and lunch and snacks along the way, but uh, we would encourage you to <laughs> abstain from dinner alongside of us tonight. The, the picture is, and we see this all throughout Scripture among the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, fasting is, is important discipline in our growth in Christ, and not just individually, but as a people. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we, we see the people of God setting aside days of fasting for, for guidance, for direction, for deliverance. In some circumstances, we see the people of God. We, we did this in August. We see this in Joel, the picture of fasting and confession of sin and repentance. We see the People in Acts chapter 13, the local church is worshiping and fasting, and that's where the birth of Paul's missionary journeys comes out of. And so we set aside periodic Sundays during the year for fasting together and praying together. And this is, this is that Sunday. And, and oftentimes when you look in Scripture, you see fasting for specific reasons. And, and what we're doing, and you see at the top of your notes there, is a, is a fast today for the nations now, when you hear that word nations, I want you to think about it like Scripture thinks about it. Because when Scripture talks about nations in the Old Testament, when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, go preach the gospel to all nations, the picture is not nations like we think of it in our world today. 190 or so nations like the United States. Obviously, the United States was not around in the first century, as well as a lot of the nations around us. And so it's a totally different picture in Scripture. When Scripture refers to nations, the picture is these ethno-linguistic groups, tribes, clans, peoples, called people groups. And basically, we've got 190 or so nations in the world today, but biblical and anthropological scholars have identified over 11,000 ethno-linguistic groups or people groups in the world today. Far more than the number of nations, the number of people groups. And you think about it, it makes, it makes sense. A people group is a, is a group that shares common language, common cultural characteristics. You take a nation like India, massive nation with over a billion people. Those people are not monolithic, not all Indians are exactly the same. You've got tons of different people groups in India, tons of different languages, some different, tons of different cultural characteristics, not just India, here in the United States. There are tons of different people groups living here in Birmingham, especially you go to a mega city like, like New York or something and you, you stand on the subway and you hear all these different languages and all these different people groups represented around you. And so over 11,000 people groups in the world. And those same biblical anthropological scholars have, have studied to see how the, the gospel has 
penetrated these different people groups. And basically, they have identified over 6,000 people groups that are still today unreached with the gospel. To be unreached means that in that people group, less than 2% of the people are evangelical Christian, gospel-believing Christians. So less than 2% of the people have heard and believed the gospel, which just to kind of to practically help us understand this, if you're living in one of those people groups, the reality is you would be born and you would live and you would die. And the likelihood is you would, you would never hear the gospel. Never even hear it. These are not a people who have heard the gospel and 98% of them have rejected it. The reality is the masses, some estimate over a billion and a half people, have never even never even heard it, don't have access to it. How, how, how is that possible? How is it possible for over 6,000 people groups with all the resources we have in the church that over 6,000 people groups still are not reached with the gospel? And so we have, we have said as a church, as a faith family here, we, we are not going to, to sit back content with that number that we're going we're gonna to give, we're going to prioritize our spending in our lives and our families, and we're going to stop running after all, all the stuff in this world. We're going to start spending on what really matters, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to give, we're going to go, we're going to go short term for short periods of time. We're going to go long term. Some of us are going to pack our bags, sell our homes here, and move into these people groups around the world. We're going to go long term. We're going to give, we're going to go, and we're going to pray. When, when Jesus in Matthew 9 is talking about the harvest and need of the gospel, he says one thing. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And so that's why, in particular, we've set aside this Sunday as a day of fasting and prayer for the gospel to go to the nations, to all of these people groups. Now, the text we come to is Mark chapter 11. It's the text that we have read this last week. We're going to start in just a second in verse 15. It's a story, a short story, a surprising story in the Gospels that gives us a bit of a different picture, portrait of Jesus than that which we oftentimes think. So what I want to do, you've got in your notes three different emphases I want to show you in this short story. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at each one of these three and then we're going to pause and we're going to we're going to let that soak in. We're going to spend time in prayer. You see some prayers that we're going to pray corporately together. We're going to pray individually. We're going to, we're going to sing together in musical worship. We're going to let these three emphases soak in and, and let this kind of encapsulate our day of fasting and prayer. So Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Listen to this story with me. And they came to Jerusalem, they being Jesus and the disciples, and he, he being Jesus, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him 
because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us tonight in this room to understand what provoked Jesus in this way. Help us to see what what caused holy anger to arouse in our loving Savior. All, All throughout this year, Lord God, we have seen in the sinfulness of your people a mirror of our own souls. And so we pray that you would make this text a mirror for us tonight. Help us to see anything in ourselves that we need to see in them. And we pray that you would, in the same way that Jesus did on that day, that you would, you would turn upside down some things in our, our hearts and our lives and among us as your people for your purpose, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the context. This is just a couple of days before Jesus is about to go to the cross and die. So he's walking, mourning, into Jerusalem with his disciples. The picture at the center of Jerusalem was the temple that God had set up in the Old Testament. And structure of the temple is really important here. Picture temple building in the middle surrounded by different courts. Courts where people gathered to worship. On the outside, outskirts, were the, was the court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jews, Gentiles, foreigners would come to worship. Then you go through the court of the Gentiles. If you're working your way from the outside in, you walk through the court of the Gentiles, and you will come to a sign that literally says, if you're a foreigner, you go no further than here. Gentiles, stop here. Then you keep going in if you are Jewish, and you would come into the court of Jewish women, where the Jewish women would worship. You keep going further, you come to the court of Jewish men, where the Jewish men would worship. You keep going forward, you come into the court of priests, where the the priests who led the people of God in the worship of God would do their work. And then you come to the, the temple building itself, and you progress into the center of that, and you come to the the Holy of Holies, where God symbolically in His glory dwells among His people. And what happens is, as you work your way from the outside in, less and less and less people are able to, to progress in. You got everybody able to gather in the court of the Gentiles. You get into the Holy of Holies, and only the priest at periodic times, only at certain times, can go into the Holy of Holies. There's a curtain that separates. The picture is separates sinful man from a holy God. The only way that somebody can go into the presence of a holy God is to offer a sacrifice for sinful man. And so that's the picture that's set up. And this is the way God has designed for his people's worship. All the way back in the Old Testament that we saw earlier this year. And so Jesus and his disciples come into the temple courts and immediately are, they find themselves engulfed in commercialism. There's people over here charging exorbitant prices to exchange money for a temple tax. There's, there's benches and tables set up with doves and pigeons and other sacrifices and people bartering and buying and selling. 
business happening everywhere. You can just imagine the noise and the busyness of all these people carrying around all their business. And then in verse, verse 16, this is one of the most overlooked verses in this story. In verse 16, it says, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Basically what was happening in that day was, well, the temple's a pr- pretty big place. These courts, and if you're on this side of the city and you want to get over to this side, you don't want to walk all the way around the temple. It's a lot easier just to use the temple courts as a, as a pass-through. And so what you had was people who would be carrying their merchandise, and hey, if they met somebody along the way that they could sell something to, all the better, but carrying their merchandise through the temple courts. And what you, get the picture here. What provoked the fury of Christ, like just picture the scene. Imagine the fire in his eyes and the, and the intensity in his voice as he goes over to, to this table and he thrusts it on his side. Now this is the same guy who earlier in this chapter when he came into the city, everybody was bowing down and worshiping and singing about peace and And now he's violently turning things over all over the place in the temple. He's telling people who are just walking through, using the temples of throughway, stop. And he's got, obviously got the the crowd's attention at this point. Why? Why did he do this? Well, I want to show you. We're going to kind of progress to what I think is the ultimate point here, but we'll start here. He was provoked to holy anger because he was surrounded by a people who would become casual with the presence and the glory of God. A people who were carrying on all their business in busyness and weren't giving second thought to the reality of who they were there to worship and the one in whose presence they were in, his glory and his might and his power. And these people were just not even giving second thought to that. Now, here's what we need to be really careful in this passage. We don't need to equate in any way temple with church building. Okay, the picture is not, okay, well then we need to make sure we don't have a lot of business going on in the church building. That, that's not the picture. We're going to see temple and church building very, very different. But there are some parallels here. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it is possible for us as the people of God to be so consumed with religious activity that we we lose sight of the greatness of our God? Is it possible for us to consume our lives with religious routine and lose sight of the one around whom, the one to whom we are giving worship to, like even in a room like this, when we do gather together as the church, isn't it possible for us to kind of go through the motions, oh yeah, sing a few songs, listen to a guy talk for a long, long, long time, and then sing some more, and then, then we go on, and that's just what we do, and never, never give recognition to the reality of what we have gathered together to do? Like think about it. We have come together in this room to give Glory and honor and praise to the one who is infinitely holy and inconceivably wonderful. 
His greatness, no one in this room can fathom. All of us collectively in this room cannot imagine the splendor of the one we are worshiping. The greatness, the gravity of our God. The magnitude of what is involved in worship. God, help us not to be casual with you. Or complacent in your worship. And this is where, first thing in your notes there, why are we fasting today? We're fasting from food, coming aside from food, saying more than we hunger for food, we hunger for the praise of God in the church. We hunger for the praise of God. We want to revere God, to be in awe of God. We want his name and his greatness to be exalted in the church. And and so what I want us to do is I, I want us to let this, let this soak in in prayer and in worship. You've got in your notes, you, you, you'll notice three different prayers. And these, these prayers are corporate prayers that I, that I want us to pray together. They're, they're taken from a great Puritan prayer book called the Valley of Vision. And you study Puritan men and women. This was centuries ago. I and mean, these are men and women who walked with God and knew God. And prayers they were praying and writing preserved for centuries. And so what I did is I took them and I kind of reworked them a little bit, just took out some these and thous so we would kind of understand what we were praying. But, but I want us together to, to pray corporately. And we're going to start with this, this first one. And then, then after we pray, to, to praise together and then, and then to pray some more. But across this room, just before we go any further, to be reminded of the, the gravity of our God and the, the wonder of what we have actually gathered together to do in this room tonight. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want to invite you to fix your gaze, to fix your mind's attention and your heart's affection, not in any casual way, in awe on the, on the God that we worship. And so we're going we're gonna to read through this prayer corporately together. We're going to pray this prayer corporately together. And the goal is not to get through it fast. Like We're going to go just deliberately through it. And I want you to consider the wonder of, of our God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, that He is the, the God we, we praise. And so, so we're going to pray this together, then we're going to sing. I just want us to let this soak in. We hunger for the praise of God in the church. Let's pray this together, aloud together. Three in one, one in three, God of our salvation, heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, we adore you as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons. Oh, Father, you have loved us and sent Jesus to redeem us. Oh, Jesus, you have loved us and assumed our nature. You have shed your blood to wash away our sins. Oh, Holy Spirit, you have loved us and entered our hearts. You have implanted there eternal life and you have revealed to us the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, 
we bless and praise you for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wonderful, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. Oh, Father, we thank you that in fullness of grace, you have given us to Jesus to be his sheep. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that in fullness of grace, you have accepted us and become our advocate. Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you that in fullness of grace, you have implanted faith within us. You have subdued our stubborn hearts and you have made us to be one with Christ forever. Oh, Father, you are enthroned to hear our prayers. Oh, Jesus, your hand is outstretched to take our positions. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are willing to help our weaknesses, to supply us with prayers, and to strengthen us to praise. Oh, triune God, you command the universe, and we pray today, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. You can have a seat. More than we hunger for food, we hunger for the praise of God in the church. Now, now go with me to Mark chapter 15. And while you're turning there, uh, I want us to realize in a deeper way what's going on in Mark chapter 11. So Jesus comes into the temple and he starts turning over all these tables. The reality is he's turning a lot of things upside down here. And it's not just tables. Because what he's doing is he is redefining the worship of God. This is key to understanding. You go to John's account in John chapter 2 of this temple cleansing. And in Jesus' conversation with people afterwards, he makes it clear that he, his body, is the temple. Which is a pretty bold claim. The temple was a picture of the glory of God, the presence of God. And Jesus says, that's, that's me. Now, you don't say that lightly. But this is the whole portrait of who Christ is. He is the glory of God in the flesh. He is the temple of God in the flesh. And just as you would go to the temple to meet with God, the way to meet with God is by going to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through him. How can he make those kind of claims? And this is the essence of what we see in the temple. Holy God dwelling in the midst of sinful people and worship led by a priest who would periodically, all kinds of other sacrifices, but then on the Day of Atonement would, would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice. Why? Why blood? Why sacrifice? Because way back in in Genesis 2, we saw God created man and woman to, and created them to dwell with him. And he told them, if you sin, you will die. 
And so in Genesis 3, they sin. But they're still alive. And the only way they're still alive is because God takes the sacrifice of an animal and clothes them. In his justice, the penalty for sin must be paid. And so that's where we see this whole sacrificial system set up. That when the priest goes in on the day of atonement, atonement means to be at one with something, to be reconciled with something. And so the way that the people, sinful people, are reconciled with the holy God is by a priest offering a sacrifice on the altar, sprinkling blood over what was the atonement cover, the blood of a sacrifice, to show that the payment for sin, death, had been paid so that the holiness of God could dwell among sinful people. Well, Jesus comes on the scene and and he, he doesn't say, I'm coming to make a sacrifice at the temple. He comes and he says, I, I am the sacrifice. Now, don't miss it. He is the glory of God in the flesh, the presence of God in the flesh, the holiness of God in the flesh. He has no sin. And so days after this, when he walks to the cross and he pays the penalty of sin, and yet he has no sin to pay for, then whose penalty is he paying? I'm glad you asked. He is paying the penalty of of sin that is due men and women in every nation, among every people group. And Jesus is paying their price on their behalf, our price on our behalf. Now what would happen is the priest, when he offered a sacrifice, would go through this curtain that separated him and sinful man from holy God, go in there, offer the sacrifice, and get out. Jesus, on the other hand, when he offers sacrifice, Mark chapter 15, verse 37. Verse 37 is Jesus. This is Jesus on the cross. He pays the price. He dies. Jesus uttered a loud cry, and the sinless one breathed his last. Jesus died. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Yes. The picture here. Mark is intentional to tell us this in light of Mark chapter 11 to remind us that in Jesus offering the sacrifice once for all for the sins of men and women in every nation, now the way has been opened for man to be with God through Christ. To any person in any nation at any time who trusts in Christ and what he has done as a sacrifice for sin on the cross, paying the payment of sin, and then rising from the grave, by the way, in victory over sin, to all who trust in Christ, the way is open for you to be with God, to know God, to walk with God, to encounter the glory of God. This is why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, because no one else is sinless, able to pay this price, and no one else has died to pay the price, and no one else has conquered sin and the price, death, on the cross by rising from the grave. Anybody else brings those three things to the table, then we've got an argument here, but there's no one like him. And, and so, now, this, it gets better. Like, I'm not making this stuff up. This is real. Here in Mark, and then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And New Testament takes on a whole new picture. Because Paul says, 
you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of God. Now, not in the same way that Jesus is, glory of God in the flesh, presence of God in the flesh. We're, this doesn't mean that we're just like Jesus was in that sense, but the picture is when you are reconciled to God through Christ, through the blood of Christ, then you have free access to God and He puts His Spirit in you. And so, God's presence dwells within sinful people. Now, why is all that so important? It's important because when we come to Mark chapter 11, we realize, wow, this is really not about what tables need to be overturned in the lobby of a church building. This is something much deeper than a church building. This is about our hearts. And it's about the tables that need to be overturned within us. It's about the facets of our lives as followers of Christ, with this very Spirit of God dwelling in us. What in us is not pleasing to Him? What in us is a hindrance to intimacy with him? What sin are you struggling with? What temptation are you giving into? What are you seeking after, giving affection to, longing for more than God? This whole passage is about turning that over. Lord Jesus, turn that over in my heart. Anything in my mind, my desire, my heart, my will, actions, what in me is not most pleasing to you? So this is what we're fasting for. We hunger for the praise of God in the church. And then second, we hunger for the holiness of God in our lives. We want, we want to walk in his holiness. We've we trusted in Christ. We're free from sin. We don't want to go back to that which we've been saved from. We don't want to fill our lives with that, with that which he died to cleanse us from. We want to be pure. We want to walk in holiness. This is why Jesus in the cleansing the temple, he quotes from Jeremiah 7 at one point. He says, you have made this place a den of robbers. And what he quotes from there is Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is when Jeremiah gives a temple address. He's in the temple speaking to people who were, who were, don't miss it, who were carrying out worship practices, but using their worship practices as a cover-up for their sin, even as an excuse for their sin. We can sin, we can go after the sacrifices, we'll be okay. Now again, it's, it's not the same picture. We're not talking about going to the temple to offer sacrifices, but oh, this is, this is dangerous here. On one level, is it possible for us to try to use religious activity, even under the guise of worship, in our lives to cover up for sin in our hearts? Like we, all, we all know it is possible to come into a room like this, to sing songs, to go through the motions, and never once be honest with God about sin that we are struggling with. If we're not careful, we can convince ourselves that, yeah, we're doing it all right, and yet ignore persistent, prevailing sin right within us. And what's even deeper danger is, is we can cheapen the picture that Christ has died for. We can say, well, I mean, how prevalent is it? Well, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I've trusted Jesus, but I just live however I want now. I do whatever I want. I mean, I'm forgiven, right? 
Oh no, do not cheapen the blood-bought forgiveness of God in Christ like that. He died so that we might be holy and pure, so that we might be free from sin, from the dominion of sin, and walking with God in holiness and purity. And so, and so we would, we would miss, miss this text if we did not take time aside to examine our hearts and to spend time in confession in this room. What needs to be turned over, upside down in us, taken away in us, cleansed in our hearts. And so you've got in your notes there uh, a second prayer. It's a prayer of confession. What I want us to do, and you can stay seated, but we're going to pray this together corporately. And then after that, these guys are going to be out here, and we're going to have time in just individual confession all across this room. And not aloud, but between you and the Lord, each of us and the Lord, spending time honest with Him about our sins, asking Him, Lord, what needs to be overturned in my heart? Maybe you are here tonight, and for the first time you confess your need for God to cleanse your heart through what Christ has done on the cross for you, and you trust in what he has done. You say, I need you to cleanse my heart. I want to be reconciled to you. I want to come to you through Christ to do that tonight. And then, and then for, for Christians all across this room, for us to spend time examining our hearts and spend time in in confession, and these guys are going to sing over us in that process. We're not going to sing together. We're going to pray all across this room in confession while, while they sing over us. So I want us to pray this prayer corporately together, and, and then we'll go into individual time in confession. So let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, save us entirely from our sin. We know we are righteous through the righteousness of another but we long for likeness to you. We are your children and should bear your image. Help us to recognize our death to sin. When it tempts us, help us to be deaf to its voice. Deliver us from the invasion and dominion of sin. Grant us to walk as Christ walked, to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, and the life of holiness. We abhor our bodies of death, their envy, meanness, and pride. Forgive and kill these vices in us. Have mercy on our unbelief, on our corrupt and wandering hearts. When your blessings come, we begin to idolize them, and we set our affections upon them instead of you, our children, our friends, our wealth, and our honor. Cleanse this spiritual adultery and give us purity. Close our hearts to everything but you. Sin is our greatest curse. Let your victory be displayed in our lives. Help us to be devoted confident, obedient, resigned, childlike in our faith, to love you with soul, body, mind, and strength, to love others as we love ourselves, to be saved from raging tempers, 
hard thoughts, slanderous words, and unkind manners. Fill us with your grace daily that our lives may be pleasing to you. Amen. One more place I want you to turn. It's Isaiah chapter 56. And this is where I'm convinced we come to the, the main point of the cleansing of the temple. What we've seen is, is obviously very important, but I, I want to show you something even deeper here. When Jesus, when Jesus comes in and he starts turning over tables, stops people from using a cut through, first words out of his mouth, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6 and 7. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So I want you to, I want you to see where he's quoting from. Start in verse 6. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And God said, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here it is, this is the quotation. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now the question is, why, why this verse? Out of all that Jesus had to choose from, why this one verse at this time? This is where we make a mistake if we come to Mark 11 and we say, well, well the church house then is supposed to be a house of prayer. Church building is supposed to be a place of prayer. No. Yes, when the church gathers together, we need to pray. No question about that. But that's not the primary point of what's going on in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus quotes from here. He could have quoted from a variety of different places to talk about prayer, seeking God, interceding for others. Instead, he quotes from this verse in particular that's talking about how his house will be a house of prayer for all peoples, how he will, God will bring these to his holy mountain. Who's the these? Up in verse 6. Foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, he will bring to his temple, and his house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now when it says he will bring foreigners, when it says foreigners there in the Old Testament, do you think that's referring to Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles, right? You know, the foreigners are not referenced. I mean, the Jewish people are not referenced as foreigners in the Old Testament. This is Gentiles, non-Jews. And God is saying that he's going to bring not just the people of God in the Old Testament, not just the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. He's going to bring all nations, all peoples, to behold his glory and to see his wonder and to give him praise and to pray to him. So that's what Isaiah 56 is talking about. Why did you just quote it? Well, now come back to the picture we've seen in Mark 11 and why we looked at the context we did. Remember, we have the temple set up the way it is, the court of Gentiles, court of Jewish women, court of Jewish men, court of Jewish priests, in the Holy of Holies. Think about it. Where, where do you think that all these tables and these benches and everything, where do you think they set those up? Do you think they set those up in the middle of the Holy of Holies? Obviously not. Court of priests? No. Court of Jewish men? No. Court of Jewish women? No. No, they had set all this up in the, in the court of the Gentiles. The, the one place 
where the nations could come and encounter, behold, worship the glory of God. They had turned it into a market for their own self-interests. They had basically filled the court of the Gentiles with all their stuff and all their activities and all their self-serving interests and in the process had said, let the nations go to hell. And, and this is where the mirror is clearest. Because is it not possible? Is it not what we have done? Have we not filled under the guise of worship and religious activity our lives as the people of God with stuff and things for ourselves and in the process neglected 6,000 plus people groups who still don't even have the gospel? It's not... It's not that we don't have the resources to get the gospel to them. We got more than enough people and more than enough resources represented in the church today. But the reality is we have spent our resources and our, our energy and our money and our lives on more activities for ourselves and more comforts for ourselves and more things for ourselves. Even, even under the guise of religious activity and worship, filled our lives with ourselves. And in the process, we have said to generation after generation among 6,000 plus people groups that still don't have the, have the gospel, we have said, you, you, can, you can go to hell. But we're going to have our stuff. We need to repent. We need to repent and to realize the purpose of worship is not to seek after, gain self-interest, this for that from ourselves so we can have religious activities and programs and things. No, the purpose of worship is to raise up a people who are passionate about the praise of God among all peoples. God says, my desire is for my glory to be encountered by every single people group on the planet. He deserves praise. He desires praise and deserves praise from all 11,000 plus people groups. He deserves praise from every single one of those 6,000 people groups that still doesn't have the gospel. And the people of God who believe that will give their lives to making his praise known among them. So this is, this is the primary reason we're fasting and praying today. Because we desire, we hunger for the praise of God in the church. Yes, we hunger for the holiness of God in our lives. And then most Deeply, we hunger for the glory of God in the nations. More than we long for food, more than our souls desire, more than our stomachs desire food, our souls desire the gospel and the glory of God going to the ends of the earth. And, and the beauty is, not only does God desire and deserve their praise, he will receive their praise. There is coming a day, and he promised it in Isaiah 56. It's coming about in Revelation chapter 7 when every single one of these people groups is going to be represented around the throne of Christ singing his praise, giving him glory. It's going to happen, which means all the more reason to give all of our resources to taking the gospel to them because it's guaranteed to work. 
and you go to 6,000 plus people groups who don't have the gospel now, and you preach the gospel to, you, you, to them, you may lose your life in the process. You may lose, lose property and stuff and things in this world. But in the end, they're going to believe. There's people that are going to believe and are going to be gathered together around the throne of God, giving him glory. And that's worth giving everything for. It's worth giving giving everything for. Then they'll respond. I want to share with you, some of you uh, may have been here at Secret Church on Friday night. Many of you I know weren't because the tickets went out, sold out in five minutes. But we had an opportunity here from a friend that I want to introduce you to, Reza. And uh, Reza is from Central Asia. And I, I want you to hear how a man in a people group that unreached for the gospel, the Lord brought him to Christ. And I just want you to hear the sovereign grace of God, how God desires his glory from all people groups. Reza. Thank you. Yes, my name is Reza. Uh, I was born in Iran, 1975, the time that the revolution came in my country. Uh, uh, that was a very hard time when I growing in country, uh, very strong Islam religions, uh, I couldn't uh, make plan for my future. That was not freedom. Uh, the, my country started to fighting with the other country, Iraq. Every day we have a rocket and bomb in my city and my country. So the time come and I thinking for my future and I decide don't stay anymore inside Iran and to going outside to the other country, to the country that I can make a plan, that I can have a freedom there. So one time I say goodbye to my family, to my friends, and I come outside from Iran, and I went to Austria, and I started to living there. But to living in Austria, I need to accept by the government, and I went to the refugee camp, and I stayed there, uh, uh, and after that to the police, and give my case and my problem for my countries. But in that time in Iran, uh, in, in, in Austria, in refugee camp, uh, some Iranians, they lived there, and they saw that I am alone there, and they came to me, they was family, they was very nice to me, and uh, sometimes bring the lunch for me. And one day, they came to me and say, Wednesday evening, we have a party, and if you want, you can come to our party. So I saw the party is good, it will be nice, and I decided to go in Wednesday evening to this party. So I make myself ready, and I went there, that was in refugee camp in one room, and we sit together, and I see the other Iranian also is there. And uh, after a few minutes, uh, they're looking at each other, and they say, okay, we can start. And I say, okay, it will be good, the party will start. Uh, but after that, uh, one of them looked the other and say, okay, you can pray. And the other say, now nah, you pray. And I think which of parties that they want to pray for this party? I didn't really understand. But they started to pray, and that was the first time in my life that I can hear uh, that somebody pray to the God with, uh, with my language and say, Heavenly Father. Uh, that was awesome. That was amazing, and I enjoyed a lot. Uh, but after pray, one lady from Austria was in this group, and she started uh, to sharing the uh, uh, word of God. And the subject was God is love. 
And she started to speaking, and God has a plan for us. God is love. God loves every people, every nation. And I sitting there, and I couldn't believe what she said. And I said, what, what, what say these crazy ladies? She said, God is love. And I come from the country that is the Muslim country, and the Allah, the God from this country, has a big role. And everything that you see going on in this country, it's come from Allah. And I couldn't understand when she said God is love, because I didn't see anything from God and, and, and coming uh, from the loving God. I sitting there and I say nothing, but after the meeting, she came to me and said, we are so glad that you are here. But I was not really in that meeting. And after that, she said, do you know that God loves you and he has a plan for you? I couldn't sit in any mayor uh, and, and, and I, I stand up and I was very angry for what she shared with me. And I said, I'm really sorry for you and what you're sharing today. I couldn't believe that God loved me, but if you want really to know God, you can come to my country and living there, and after that, I will be sitting with you and speaking about the God. And I coming out in that room, uh, and she say, but you have to know that God loves you, and we love you, and we will pray for you. <laughs> I was so angry that I said, I don't need your prayer, and you can pray for yourself, and I coming out that room. So that night, uh, I saw... Is something really happened in me, but I didn't understand. After two weeks, uh, the Austrian government sent a letter to me and say, you cannot stay anymore in that country, and you have to go back to your country. So uh, I didn't like really go back to my country because I knew how is this country and how darkness is, and I came out for this darkness, and I saw I couldn't not stay anymore in, uh, in Austria. So I started to thinking, and I, I coming out at the night in my room and walking, and I told myself, uh, Reza, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, you cannot go back to your country, and I didn't like to go, and I told myself, you cannot stay anymore here. You know, I was in the free country, but I was not free, and, and I asking and crying, where is, where is my country, where I can to be there and living there? And the only things that come in my mind that I can really to do for myself, that was that I kill myself. So I was in this thinking, but amazing that uh, in somewhere God uh, touched my heart and I started to speak to God. And I say, God, where, where are you? If I was in Iran and I asking where is God, uh, my, my father, my friends, the teachers say, you are not allowed to ask in the God. But now I came to Austria in this Western country, and somebody come to me and say, God love you and has interest for you and had planned for you. But if you can listen to my voice, please come, and I need you and help me. And the Holy Spirit started to speak to my heart that night, and he used the word that this lady using for the, his word and speak to my heart and say, yes. I love you, and I have a plan for you. That was amazing. That was awesome. How the hope from God coming in my heart and the light and all the darkness things that was in my life is gone. So I can remember that I went back, same a child, to my bed, and I was sleeping very well. And in the morning, I wake up. I coming to this refugio camp, and I'm looking at every people. 
And I say to myself and to them, you know, you don't need really citizenship for Austria. The only things that is missing in your life is the Jesus. And I went back to these friends that they sharing with me word. And I go to them and I say, I'm really sorry for what I told you, but that's happened. And they come and hug me and say, Reza, you know, we pray for you if you live here, uh, if you live here. So uh, that's happened that I came to the Lord. Uh, after, after a few months, I, I, government from Austria accepted me to be the uh, citizenship from Austria. But good to know that God gave me the citizenship from heaven and I can be in his kingdom forever with him and praise them, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Reza. So, so there's over a billion raises living among people who uh, have never heard God is love in Christ. What happens when they hear? Not, not saying it will always be easy by any means. Reza, you heard at the end of his story that he was granted citizenship and in Austria after fleeing from Iran, but Reza's not just now coasting out in Austria. Reza is going back into another country that will leave unnamed to, to proclaim the gospel there at the risk of, of his life. And he, he knows that people who've never heard need to hear, and he's willing to give everything to make it known. And I say we join him. I say we give, not I, word warrants that we give and we go and we pray. We spend ourselves, our lives and our families and the church until all these people groups know. Until that word unreached is eliminated from the, the category. We pray and we give and we go. And so what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you to take the, there's brown paper bags at the end of each row. They're on the inside of each row. And you might need to, to go down to the inside to, to get it. Let me, let me invite you to take those and begin to pass. There's cards inside. Take a card out and then, and then pass them down the row. So everybody gets a card that looks like this. And, and so get that, get that card and then, and then take your notes that has this, this third corporate prayer at the bottom. So what I want us to do is every one of these cards, and most of you have different ones, so they're not all the same, but has a people group on it, an unreached. These are the largest, most unreached people groups in the world. And so I want to invite you to take a card. And in just a second, we're going to intercede. We're going to call out. We're going to plead for the gospel and the glory of Christ to be made known among these people groups. What we're going to do is we're going to pray first corporately together with this, this prayer that's in your notes. And then that's going to lead us into praying individually for these people groups. And, and we're going to pray together for the glory of God to be made known among the nations, among the people groups. So you can read that in a second and pray specifically for that people group. Take your notes with me and let's corporately, let's corporately pray this prayer together out loud. Sovereign God, 
your cause, not our own, engages our hearts. And we appeal to you to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself, and we will rejoice, for to bring honor to your name is our sole desire. We adore you, and we long that others might know and delight in you. Oh, that all men might love and praise you, that you might have all glory from all the world. Let sinners be brought to you for your name's sake. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But you can accomplish great things. This is your cause, and you alone can save men for your glory. O oh Lord, use us however you will, and do with us whatever you want. Oh, promote your cause, let your kingdom come, and let your interests be advanced in this world. Oh, bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let us see that glorious day, and let us be willing to die for that glorious end. It is your cause and your kingdom that we long for, not our own. Oh, answer our requests and make your praise known among all the peoples. Amen.